Hi, everyone. This is our first episode of Understand South Carolina that we're recording remotely. And that's why it sounds a little bit different, because like many of you, we're all working from home. So today we're going to bring you another special episode about the coronavirus pandemic's effect in South Carolina. I'm Emery Parker. And I'm Emily Williams. We're joined virtually today by health editor Lauren Saucer and business reporter M.K. Wildeman. Both of them were here with us for the last episode of the podcast that we recorded on March 11th about COVID-19. Um, obviously, so much has changed since then, so we have a lot to discuss with them today. And thank you both for being here. Happy to be here. Of course. Or being here well, via computer, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess um, let's just jump in right there because that's the biggest thing that's maybe changed is that the last time we recorded we were in the office and now we're obviously not in the office we're all recording from home how is everybody dealing with working from home and and this massive change to your life for me it's like having to work with a lot of distraction it's really hard to concentrate on any one thing i have two little kids and so you know, one is four and she's watching a lot of TV and I'm trying to retrain the baby to take two naps a day and we take a walk in the afternoon, but it's like, it's not easy to work, you know, eight hours uninterrupted. My husband works full time too. So, you know, some mornings I'm getting up at 530 to write for a few hours before everyone else is up. And um, sometimes it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's balancing and we both feel very lucky to have jobs. That's yeah. one thing that I keep thinking about, but well, it's you definitely new. You mentioned last time, um, a vacation you were, you were worried about. I assume that's off. Canceled. Yeah. It was supposed to be last week. We were going to go, we had rented a house, um, on a little Island in the Bahamas, which apparently has not been very hard hit, but it was just too risky. Rescheduled yeah. for November. Oh man, that's a shame. M MK, what about you? How, how, been, how you been holding up? Well, actually, I have been holding up pretty well. I am pretty productive working from home, um, and we've just been so busy that you know I feel like I'm getting a lot done. But there's definitely a lot of stress and pressure to get information out, uh, and we're trying to keep up with those demands and get readers the information they need, but. It's been sort of like a sleepless experience, to be totally yeah. honest. Um, I'm just personally really anxious and worried about the situation Absolutely. and what it means for, you know, our state and the country. So I've just been really worried, but yeah. productive. Just just thinking about the difference between when we were talking on March 11th, um, it just feels so different because I think at that point, um, we knew that there was a lot to come. Um, but at the, at the same time, I feel like at least uh, me personally, I felt calmer at that point. And, um, the uncertainty wasn't, wasn't quite as, um, palpable maybe as it is right now. Um, so it's just interesting kind of comparing the last time you know, that all of us were talking for this podcast. It's, it yeah. feels very, very different. I, I've definitely, I feel like I've lost sense of time. Um, the days just kind of all blur together. It's, that's the hardest part for me about working from home is just, there's not this like hard delineation between work time and home time now. And it's just kind of like stuff is happening constantly. There's always breaking news. 
when we were trying to record the intro, we forgot when the last episode was um, and had a really hard time <laughs> remembering just two weeks ago. Uh, that's that's how much of, of a blur it, it feels like. Um, but MK, so you mentioned that your your main anxiety is is how this is impacting South Carolina. And I think that's probably the meat of what we want to talk about because um, certainly if you're like me, you're, you're probably watching CNN all day or at least have a an eye on CNN throughout the day. So maybe you have a really good idea of what COVID-19 is doing on a national, from a national perspective, but what's going on in South Carolina? Well, I think, you know, we're talking about how things have been surprising um, since the last time we recorded a podcast. And I think the, the biggest surprise for me is just how much this is impacting our economy and just how many people are out of work and how many businesses are having to shutter. Um, one of our editors this morning posted a photo of uh, the downtown area, like around the, the market and it's just totally empty. And so that's that's been really surprising. And for the moment, I think that's the biggest, you know, human impact we're seeing. And it's huge that people don't have a paycheck. Yeah. Um, so I think I think that's massive. And of course, we're also worried about the rising number of cases and the rising number of, of deaths. Yeah. Um, and it's so, really scary. So many so many of the restaurant groups here have have laid off most, if not all, of their staffs. Um and, you know, to be clear, that sounds a little bit heartless, but there is a logic behind it, which is that, you know, if you lay your staff off, then they become eligible for unemployment, you know, and, and you've got to think to strategically, how do I, you know, if, if I run a restaurant, how do I keep it running throughout, you know, maybe a couple of months and so that I can rehire people when they get back. So it's not, it's, it's a hard thing to judge. Um, but certainly a lot a lot of people yeah are, are out of work and, and really struggling and i know that's been something that um we've been reporting on so emily what do you know do you know much about that the uh the the department of employment and workforce i mean they've been uh completely overwhelmed you know the last the last couple of weeks um the new unemployment claims numbers come out uh on Thursday, um, so we know the numbers for uh, not this this week prior to when we're talking now, but the week before that. And for that week, unemployment claims numbers in South Carolina were up four hundred percent. Nationwide, it was three point three million claims. It, it, that's just an astronomically high number. Um, and I, I do know. I don't know the exact number. I was actually just talking to Dwayne Parrish, who's the state's tourism director, um, this morning. And we don't know, we, we can't give a number of how many of the unemployment claims are coming from the hospitality sector, but I, it's it's definitely the majority, easily, you know, by, by, by far. Um, most of the employees that have been laid off at this point work at uh, restaurants, hotels, attractions. Um, I mean, hotels are, are closing 
too. I mean, and that's really surprising. Those are the kind of businesses that never close. You know, they're 24 right. seven businesses. Um, they're considered uh, essential um, businesses in most places. But Myrtle Beach, the city of Myrtle Beach, told all of its hotels to close. Um, and right. they did so over the weekend. And um, the majority of the hotels, there are more than um, more than 300, uh, actually more than 350 hotels in the state that have temporarily closed, the majority of those are in the Grand Strand area right now because of that. So it's just, it's, I I know the word's getting overused, but I mean, it's completely unprecedented to see a place like Myrtle Beach say, we want you to close down all of the hotels. It's just never seen anything like that. And of course, tourism is a huge, huge industry in South Carolina. I think if if I can add, um, this is also affecting other industries, even ones that would be considered critical right now. Like, for Definitely. example, the healthcare and hospitality industry, I'm sorry, the healthcare and hospital industry. Um, Roper St. Francis locally has flexed employees off of hours um, and they say that they're compensating them uh, through one of their owners um, for that. But I expect that is also the case at some of our other hospitals. And this morning I reported that East Cooper Medical Center, their um, parent company, uh, postponed all 401k matches. So even these businesses that are really considered to be the key responders to this pandemic are struggling financially. It's really affecting everyone. So do we know why that is? Because that seems kind of counterintuitive to me that I, I would think that right now, um, hospitals would, would need all hands on deck. And I, I wouldn't think that they were, would necessarily be hurting for money either. Do we know what, what's going on there? So it's because um, many of the elective procedures, so think um, not ur- urgent surgeries primarily, uh, are being canceled because hospitals are trying to uh, conserve their protective equipment um, and protect patients from possible infection. And those procedures are a huge part of hospitals' bottom line. Um, you know, emergency room operations typically aren't. Um, and that is what they're having to focus on right now. And in addition to that, they're having to spend a lot of money to get their hands on these supplies. Like, for instance, I know I'm USC. I think it put in at least a million dollars in orders to for PPE, this protective equipment, knowing that it won't all come at once, but they're trying to stockpile, uh, probably planning for the possibility of resurgence in the fall. So yeah. it's a huge cost up front and they're having to cancel a lot of those procedures. Which are yeah. revenue generating for hospitals. Right. I guess that the thing that's still kind of confusing to me is that I know the story that I, stories that I've been hearing out of um, places like New York are that the state there is putting in new procedures and policies to try and like get retired healthcare workers back into the system. Just so it's like, like that's what seems kind of weird to me is that we're seeing in some states there's such a shortage of healthcare workers, but here locally. I mean, because I, like I, I, I'm assuming that even though a a worker might normally work on elective procedures, like if you're like a nurse is a nurse, like a, you know you could still do essential work. But is is it just that we're not there yet? We don't. So we're not seeing the, the just over- like just like the virus hit different has hit different countries at different times. It's hitting different regions of 
the United States at different times. So I've spent the past couple days interviewing about 15 um, healthcare employees who are on the front lines at hospitals. And, and what almost everyone has told me is that in South Carolina, this is the calm before the storm. We're just not there yet where New York is. Um, it may never get as bad as New York. It's obviously a lot denser there than it is here. But um, but it, the virus just has not, it, we're not, you see that curve, right? Yeah. And they're just farther along the curve than we are. Let's let's kind of go through that and give an idea of, of where we are right now, because when we recorded our, our last podcast, we were looking at just a few cases, right? We were looking at just one in Charleston County. I remember at that, at that point. Um, so Emery, do you want to talk a little bit about our, um, our dashboard and, and kind of those, those real time stats that we've been updating every day? Yeah. Okay. So if you go to postandcareer.com slash COVID-19, um, we've put together what I'm calling a dashboard. Uh, it, it's pretty much what we're trying to do is is compile all the data sources that we have in a single place and kind of also help visualize how like where the hotspots are and, and what's going on. So um, if you go there, you'll you'll see the like latest information about um, and constantly updating throughout the day about you know how many cases we know about, how many deaths, where they are, et cetera. So, uh, you know, again, same rules as last time, um, you know, th these numbers are going to change. It is um, about noon on Tuesday, March 31st right now. So as of right now, it looks like uh, our total in South Carolina is 975 cases. Um, the, the big hotspot that we all knew about um, was in Kershaw County. They still... Uh, have the, the highest number of cases um, normalized by their, their population. So basically, like if you divide by the number of people, um, that, that tells you that that's where the highest share of people still have it. But the actual raw numbers have changed a lot since we talked last time. And now, actually, Richland County has um, 135 cases. Charleston is up to 123. So those, are, are, those have now overtaken Kershaw County which as of, again, as of like noon on the March 31st has 99 cases. Now, of course, I, I want to be clear about something. Um, these numbers sound very, very precise. Uh, but there, there's got to be huge margin of error here. We, we really, there, you know, there, there's, there's a big delay in the testing. E even, even in the best case scenario, we're, we're getting time delayed data. Um, we also, of course, know that not everybody that has it is getting tested. So th these are really just kind of the cases that we know about. Um, so that, that's just an important thing to, to keep in mind. I think the other, the other thing that we are really seeing is um, this, this curve. And, and you'll, see, you'll see it on our website if you, if you go to that dashboard. Um, but th there's a, a pretty classic just kind of exponential curve happening where, um, you know, we, we've basically gone from having 10 cases a day to having 20 cases a day to having 40 cases a day to having 80 cases a day. Now we're getting like over a hundred cases a day. So it's, it's definitely accelerating and right now doesn't show any signs of, of slowing down. And 
of course, even, even if it were going to slow down, like I said, we're dealing with time delay data because it takes time to actually run the test. So, you know, it, 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 we won't know in real time if, for example, like social distancing is, is working or making a difference. We'll, we'll find out about that after the fact. I think it's important to note, too, that, in fact, the uh, state health department, the, the Department of Health and Environmental Control, has actually said already that they don't want everyone who is sick to get tested. So even people who are symptomatic, they're saying now that those people don't need to get a test. Um, whereas before, they were saying that anyone with symptoms should get tested, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's in part because we have such a serious backlog Um I reported yesterday that people are waiting a week or more, depending on where those samples are being sent to labs. And so really the the picture that we're getting of those 975 positives, I feel like we have no real idea how much of the population that's infected that really represents. Right. It's some fraction. We just don't know right. what that fraction is. Yeah, that's right. What explains that difference in the time that it can take for someone to get the results of their test back? I know you just said, MK, that you you wrote about this um, just Mm -hmm. yesterday. Uh, Why are people seeing those discrepancies? And then also, um, maybe how how long are some people waiting? Like, what's the, do we know what the longest wait time or approximate wait time is in, in South Carolina right now? Yeah. So basically there are right now three avenues for testing. Um, Tests can be sent either to the State Department lab, um, and they say they don't have a backlog at this point. They can be sent to a private lab, like um, LabCorp or Quest Diagnostics. Those can take a week or more because as that pipeline opened up, every hospital in the country started sending their samples to these private labs. And so naturally, they're, they're quite backed up when we've heard reports, too, that there's prioritizing regions that are further along in their curve, and we're not. So I suspect that we're seeing a greater backlog because of that. And then the third is um, MUSC's on-site testing, which they're still ramping up. And so I think we expect those backlogs and wait times to, to loosen up um, toward the end of this week, or at least that's what we know the hospital leaders are hoping for. Um, whether or not that happens, you know, is yet to be seen. Um, but yeah, the longest times I heard reported from hospitals yesterday was, I think, nine days. Wow. Um, from when you get the sample collected to when you get your results back. And note that that's, you know, more than halfway through the time that you would hypothetically be quarantining. So, which is 14 days. My sister was tested last week, and by contrast, she got hers back in a day, 24 hours. So it just varies yeah. widely. Mm-hmm. Right. When you're talking well, you- that wait time, that's also, that's just from getting the test to getting the results, right? Not from, you know, the first contact you may have, you know, over maybe right. a tele-appointment saying you have symptoms to getting a test scheduled, right? There's still a longer process even before That's possibly right. getting that test, right? In fact, mm-hmm. when my sister had to, she had to wait, the longest wait for her was just saying, okay, here's the time we want you to come through, you know, the drive-through testing site. It took several days just for her to get an appointment slot. And then once she was actually tested, the results came back pretty fast, but 
nice. Can you talk about the testing a little more, just that change in, you were speaking to that a little bit, the change in the the idea of, of if you're symptomatic, we want you to get tested. Um, just kind of how that's changed over, you know, the last few weeks. Um, just just that, that philosophy, at least in South Carolina, of who should get tested and who should not necessarily get tested. Yeah. So as the number of cases has increased, basically, uh, the state health department has said we're going to move from a strategy of containment to mitigation. And so in containment, I think there's a greater um, focus on things like contact investigations, which try to trace where someone got the virus and, you know, try to follow the thread um, and on testing to try it kind of for the same purpose. But with mitigation, it's more going to be about those stay at home orders and, efforts to try to keep people from getting infected at all um, and testing the sickest patients because as, as that number, that 975 swells, the percent of those people who are in critical condition will also naturally swell. So they want to be sure to have the supplies they need to get those people um, the tests and the care that they need, I think. So that's kind of where the reasoning comes from. We got a, a question from Twitter. Um, user at Cyberbath asked, um, where can we find SC's number uh, or backlog for testing? I don't think that that's... I'd love the answer to that question. I don't yeah. know how to find it. Yeah, that's right. I think that, uh, you know, we've been asking those questions, but we keep hearing that it's a moving target, which I think in fairness that it is. Um. And, you know, MUSC, for instance, has told us some incremental information about how many people are waiting for test results. I'm trying to look it up now. I was talking to it. I was interviewing a doctor on the phone today and he was like, you actually interviewed me several years ago. And I was like, oh, really? Great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, no recollection of it at all. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, is is the number you were thinking of the uh, 3,500 people who drove through MUSC's yes. collection site in West Ashley? So, so it's 3,500 um, who went through MUSC's collection site in West Ashley so far, and uh, 2,900 have gotten their results. Um, so that would leave, right. of, of that, you know, 600 who haven't heard back yet. That's right. Well, I, so I definitely think one of, you know, and, and I've, I've myself had a hard time keeping track of this, but I definitely think one of the harder things to follow and keep track of, and, and that's definitely confusing for people, is kind of this shifting message around testing and around um, kind of what people who think they have coronavirus or might have been exposed to it ought to uh, be doing so. What what have we learned since we talked about this last time about who should get tested, what you should do if you think you have symptoms, and actually what those symptoms are? Because I, I think we've learned some stuff about that too since we talked last. Some symptoms that we've recently learned about that we definitely didn't know about two weeks ago or two and a half weeks ago um, was um, this loss of taste and smell can be an early indicator of um, 
the virus. Apparently, that's how um, Joe Cunningham suspected he had it, and he was tested, and uh, that was his only symptom. I think um, something that we've learned is that some GI distress, diarrhea early on can be um, an early indicator of it as well. But um, who should get tested? I mean, I guess that just goes back to what MK said. I, I, you know, if you're if you're symptomatic but not in critical condition, you probably, I mean, you should not leave the house. And the more you interact with people, the more likely you are to spread it. And um, it's very, very contagious. So... Yeah. So is, is the best thing for people to do still go through one of these like tele-doc screening processes? For sure. And actually, I was going to point out, too, that um, I don't think there's anything wrong with advocating for yourself to get a test um, if you have the symptoms. So you can go through these virtual platforms from home and um, they'll recommend you for a test or not. Um, I don't again, I don't see the problem with doing that even if you're not so sick yet that you're for example having trouble breathing just to kind of advocate your, for yourself as a patient um and then as a side note i'd also say it's it's important not to overreact to symptoms that really aren't um associated with covid19 and so for example um allergies there's a pile of pollen on top of my car yeah and i've been having like a runny nose and my eyes are irritated and it's kind of giving me stress. <laughs> but then I remember that those things are really not associated with COVID-19. Yeah. Well, if you're like me too, you're, you're probably obsessively taking your temperature multiple mm. times a day. And uh, a, a thing that I've learned is that uh, not only does your temperature kind of naturally vary throughout the day, but also stress can increase it and give you mm. kind of a, a pseudo low grade fever which is uh, <laughs> exciting information. <laughs> not good. Not good for any of us. Um, MP, not at I'm, all. I'm hoping you could speak to also. Um, so, so we're talking about how we, we, do, we don't exactly know how many cases we have right now in South Carolina. We, of course, don't know what the peak will be here. You know, we don't know um, uh, to what extent the the outbreak will will grow here um but you've you've written about um the supply of ventilators that we have in south carolina i guess just to start out can we talk about why are ventilators important for hospitals to have particularly with this disease why are they so needed absolutely people have probably seen ventilators in the news across the country and especially in new york where the governor is just practically begging for more, um, just given the surge in cases there. And I'll start off this conversation by saying that there's no reason to think yet that we would run out. But um, because we kind of have fewer hospitals and they're more spaced out across the state, um, I think that could be cause for concern. Um, and it's just not seeming likely that we will get more. Um, so in the state, we have about 1,300, and a number of those are set aside for EMS and for neonatal um, care. And basically what these ventilators do is, is pump air, oxygen, into people's lungs when they're having trouble breathing themselves. 
And so when you reach the critical care stage of, of this disease, almost all patients need that ventilator support. Um, and just for color, just for, for context, um, what they're saying is that among the patients that are hospitalized, around 20% will need that critical care. So that's, it, it's a pretty significant number, actually. Um, in fact, I, I did some some math and I found that somewhere between 13,000 and 31,000 residents of the state could need that critical care during the pandemic. Now, remember that that can be spread out over, you know, possibly a significant length of time um, if we kind of obey these social distancing rules. But it's a significant number. We have to be worried about it. Right. And so in terms of the that number of um, uh, the possible number of, of, of people in the state who could need that, um, we've used right DHEX uh, 2017, like in, influenza plan, right, as, as kind of a model of figuring out maybe how many people will be infected, how many people will be hospitalized. Let's let's kind of explain that a little bit, because I think it's it's interesting, right? We haven't gotten numbers from the state saying, you know, this is our this is our estimate, but we've kind of used that use that plan as a potential model, right? For that's right. What it might look like. Right. And so basically this plan was developed in kind of in cohort with uh, the the National Department of Health and Human Services. And so it kind of mirrors national plans somewhat. But basically the the going theory with that's explained in this pandemic plan is that um, there are three possible scenarios that 15% 25% and 35% of the population could require hospital or could become infected. And then they say on top of that, you know, 80% are going to have relatively mild symptoms and won't need to be hospitalized. Another 20% will. And then, like I said before, another 20% on top of that will need to be in critical care. So I know that's a lot of numbers, but what it boils down to is, Again, those those thousands ultimately needing that critical care throughout the lifespan of this pandemic. Right. And of course, not knowing how many at one time or where they might be concentrated, because I know you've looked to it, um, ICU beds. And of course, that capacity really varies right across different parts of mm-hmm. the, the state. We have some communities that um, have a lot available, some that are much smaller that don't have many. I know you've looked at that too, right? That's right. And, you know, we've done some reporting as well about why some of our rural counties don't have any cases reported right now. And it's possible that there's some natural social distance there that's translating to people just not having the disease. Um, and hopefully our, hospitals in our more urban centers would be able to accommodate some of these patients if it came to that. Um, But I I do think that it's a concern um, because I think that this pandemic can and will affect everyone. And so it, South Carolina closed something like four rural hospitals in recent years. Lauren would know more about that than me, but um, that, that certainly leaves us with gaps in care across the state that we should be worried about. A handful of rural hospitals have closed in South Carolina in recent years, um, just as their business models um, have not been 
financially viable anymore. Um, from the best of my recollection, these have been privately owned hospitals. Um, but it's been a trend for a long time in South Carolina and um, across the country that people are just migrating to larger medical centers in bigger cities. And so their patient volume um, in, in some of these places just got to a point where it wasn't feasible to keep the hospitals open. And, you know, in emergency situations, um, that definitely presents a challenge. Some communities around the country have replaced hospitals with freestanding ERs. Um, some have, you know, partnered with larger health systems like we've seen MUSC do with some of these rural communities. Um, but there is not, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem that the industry is tackling and, and when you're faced with something um, brand new and enormous like this pandemic is, um, it, no matter what kind of system you're dealing with, it sort of highlights the system's weaknesses. And this is the, the lack of resources in South Carolina's rural communities and, and in other states is, is definitely a weak point. Yeah. I kind of want to shift now to uh, another Twitter question that I think leads us into sort of what we're seeing from, from a government perspective. So uh, at Maxwell Barnes asked, when is South Carolina going to issue a stay at home order? I don't know. I mean, maybe <laughs> we won't. I don't know. It seems like we're sort of inching in that direction. Yeah. But I thought, you know, just speaking with friends and family 10 days ago, I thought it was going to happen by the end of last week, and it didn't. Yeah. And um, we've seen states and municipalities sort of enact their own stay-at-home guidelines. So, but I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know if the governor will choose to do that or not. It seems like um, every day you read about states that are, you know, making that choice. But yeah. South Carolina is not yeah. there yet. Well, I guess to, and to sort of set the, the context of, of this in South Carolina, it's been kind of confusing and, and hard to, uh, or it's been a, a fast moving situation, maybe I should say. So... Uh, Charleston did order, um, did, did have a, or issue a, a shelter in place ordinance. So basically just stay at home. Now it has a bunch, it's not like a, a hurricane situation though, where they're actually telling people like, you know, shelter in your house. Um, cause there's obviously all these exemptions for, you know, essential businesses that are still open and, you know, you're still supposed to like go buy groceries. They're not saying don't do that. Um, but then some beaches around Charleston got in on that too. So like Folly, um, Isle of Palms, Edisto, um, all issued similar orders. Then the state attorney general, Alan Wilson, put out a, a non-binding opinion. It, it's just basically him saying, this is my opinion about how legal this is, saying he doesn't actually think that's legal. He doesn't think that um, counties and cities in South Carolina have the authority to do that and that counties and cities that do that might get sued by people 
who are unhappy with the situation. That led Folly Beach to rescind their order. And what we saw on Saturday was then a bunch of people went to Folly Beach. And, you know, it was not the busiest that the beach has ever been, but there were a lot of people out there. And then Folly went back on that, reissued the order. Then the attorney general issued a clarification saying, not really saying that his opinion is any different, but just kind of emphasizing, um, I wasn't telling people to take these orders down. I just don't think they're legal. And then yesterday, the governor just went ahead and closed all of our beaches and, and public water or water access points. So it's been kind of a, a hard it's it, like it, I understand why people might be confused about that and might be looking for the governor to just be like, why, why isn't there just a single blanket order that everybody needs to, to stay at home? And some 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 people have asked for that. It was definitely a confusing weekend. Right. I mean, uh, all of those changes with with folly, you know, it went from people coming to the beach that morning and afternoon to um, the island being closed again to non-residents by 5 p.m. You know, it was it was really a lot in a span of just several hours. Um, there were quite a few people on the beach. There were also some residents who had signs out. They were by, standing by the the bridge. Um, at least from photos, it looked like they were spaced pretty far apart um, since they were protesting people uh, gathering on the beach, um, you know, telling people to, to go home. It was it was quite a it was it, I thought it was a really interesting and a bit chaotic day with these with these um, restrictions being lifted and then being um, put in place again. It's it's definitely been confusing. It's been confusing for the communities. Right. Um, and I think they re- they they also started. Uh, even before that, issuing um, restrictions on short-term rentals because people were worried that um, visitors from other states, like New York, um, would were renting out um, uh, houses out on the beach. So that that started even even earlier. But there are still you know a few coastal communities smaller ones that haven't issued those restrictions and you know I've heard from some residents that are concerned about that so it's definitely been confusing i think especially especially for these smaller municipalities to decide um exactly what to do and and what the what the right thing to do is yeah i think that's right it's hard to say you know why the governor has decided not to put one in place yet. I feel like we really can't speculate about what his motivations are. Yeah. Um, because well, he hasn't and, really and said so. Yeah. And, and I yeah, guess to, to be fair too, it, it, in a sense, we, we kind of are in that situation. I mean, there is a, an emergency declaration and the governor is basically saying everything up to the point of issuing a stay at home order. You know, everything is, is closed. It's, it's not easy to go out and, and do stuff in the state. So it's not like they're doing nothing. It's it's just, you know, what would push them over that threshold to just be like, okay, yeah, officially everybody needs to to shelter it in in place, shelter at home. And I've been um, surprised when I've been out and about, like how many cars are still on the road. Same. Yeah. Like yeah. I was I was watching the morning news and they you know they do these live traffic shots and there was like 
traffic on the interstate. I'm like, where are these people going? Like, even if I need to go run out and get medicine in the drive-thru, I'm like, I'm like, why? Where? Where is everyone going? I don't know. Downtown, I'll say, I've also been really surprised at how much I've seen um, things like electricians and plumbers and landscapers out doing work, uh, which, you know, they're not close to each other, so I guess that's relatively safe but I, it, that, that really surprises me my neighborhood is filled with um you know lawn maintenance companies every day yeah yeah i live right off of highway 17 and it's it's very busy i probably like half as busy as it normally is i saw something on the news um this morning that really struck home for me and i feel like this is the right point to mention it but it's almost like they're like, it's a privilege to be able to stay home too. It's not like mm-hmm. some people don't have that choice. Like if you yeah. work at Walmart or the grocery store, um, mm-hmm. it's so I, I don't want to discount the fact that some people like need to get in their cars and go places, but it just seems like there is still a lot of people out there, you know? Absolutely. I'm like, where are all of you going? It's not like you individually because you know, right. people have a lot of reasons to be working right now. That kind of reminds me of, um, I think, maybe the last thing we wanted to talk about. And I know, Lauren, you've written a little bit about this. How is how is this entire situation impacting some of our more vulnerable members of, of our population? Like, uh, I, I know you, you wrote a story recently about... Um, how this is impacting children that are stuck in, in the DSS system. So like what's going on there? People maybe aren't, that's kind of flying under the radar, you know? I had an interview last week with the director of the department of social services, and I was just struck by his candidness and about how legitimately worried and anxious he is over this. And, and on the surface, you're like, okay, well, you know, this is a health, public health crisis. Like, how is it infecting, how is it impacting children, you know, in state custody who need to be adopted? Um, but it's impacting them in so many ways. I mean, foster families are, you know, saying, I don't want to take any new people into my home right now. Um, so children are increasingly being put inside these sort of larger group homes and institutions. And another scary thing that they've seen, and I hadn't even thought about this, was that, um, so DSS is is an agency that takes in calls regarding child abuse, and they there is a seasonality to these numbers, and they generally see the highest numbers of referrals for abuse and neglect in March and April, um, and then those numbers tend to dip during the summertime when children are out of school because typically educators and school officials are the reporters of the review of the, of the suspected abuse, but they've they've already seen. A decrease in March because kids aren't in school. So how scary is that to think that, you know, children are at home and parents are more stressed out than ever and they have all these pressures and they are more likely facing abuse than they would be if they were. It's just, it's just terrifying. And I, he, it was just something that I hadn't, like just a, repercussion of this awful situation that I had not thought about before. And, um, and you know, it costs the state a lot more money to 
um, bring bring new kids into the social services system because the courts aren't open, so none of them are leaving. I mean, it's just, and that's just one example. I mean, there are several agencies that are in charge of vulnerable populations, and and this was just an interview I had with one of them. So, it's it's there. We will be talking about this for a long, 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 long time. Yeah, yeah. I was really struck, like you said, with how it, how candid he was in that interview. Some of those quotes, I mean, you can just tell. I think how concerned he personally is, and and it it really was personally. It wasn't it wasn't an issue that I had thought about, but it makes so much sense when you when you think about it, right? This is this is really changing the dynamic in people's homes, and um, yeah. and we know that kids are going to be staying staying home even even longer from from school. It's um, it, it wasn't it wasn't even an issue that I had thought of. Well, that that reminds me of of something I, I know I've. Um... I've I've been kind of concerned about, and I've seen a lot of concern expressed on social media. Uh, in the same vein, um, domestic violence, right? The this the the situation being pretty much the same thing, where you, you imagine, you know, maybe you have an abusive spouse or partner, and now you're pretty much trapped in the house with them. You know, uh, have we have we? learned anything on that front yet or, or I are, we, seen are we seeing any, anything i haven't seen any data but from what i understand like the the emergency shelters for abused women are closed they are keeping hotlines open but i mean not only are you know spouses who are potentially being abused you know stuck at home with their abusers but people i haven't seen any data on this yet but i imagine people are drinking more and if they have substance abuse problems are using more and it's just it's just um it's like the perfect storm yeah not to mention just elevated levels of stress and anxiety and you know one one final point i guess about that is just that um anyone with a mental illness is going to struggle a lot with this right now and um we haven't we haven't seen any data around suicide rates yet in South Carolina, kind of as a result of this. But I, unfortunately, I imagine that will be an issue as well, um, because isolation, too, is something that can um, be a stressor for people with serious mental illness. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right there, Lauren, though. I think um, and it, just beyond all the obvious ways that this impacts our lives is this has really upended everybody's lives in, in ways that are easy to see in ways that aren't easy to see. And I'm, I'm confident that we will be talking about the, uh, the fallout of this entire situation for, for years, for decades, probably finding out ways that it impacted people years from now. Definitely. Um, I'm wondering if, um, before we, wrap up maybe um i know we've just talked about a lot of uh difficult things but but maybe if if any of us if we have any personal um recommendations or tips of kind of how to stay sane during all of this um anything that you guys have been doing to maybe break up the day or help boost your mood i um we my family my husband and i and our girls we try to do a bike ride in the afternoon around 4.30 or 5. And um, 
when I go to bed at night, I have this app called Calm. Some of y'all might have seen it. And it's, it's just, very good. Yeah, it is good. It's like, it just helps me sort of take deep breaths and, you know, it has that like rainforest white noise and I don't know. It's just, it's not helpful for me to stare at my phone in my dark bedroom and just keep scrolling through Twitter. There is such a direct correlation between my anxiety level and how much news I'm watching during the day that I find that either putting down my phone and picking up a book or turning on the meditation app as the last thing sort of helps get my mind in a good place before bedtime. Yeah, I've been um, trying to the degree that I can to, to work out after um, work just so that I give my brain something else to be occupied with and to release some of that nervous energy from the day. And, you know, it sounds trite, but uh, it certainly boosts your, those good, good juices that your brain needs to be happy. So mm-hmm. what I'll say, I, I'll, I'll do from two perspectives. Um, from a work perspective, uh, I think what I've learned so far uh, is a couple of things working from home. I think um, my biggest tips are, First of all, uh, be as, as communicative as possible, like to the point of oversharing. Like you, you just want to do things that you probably wouldn't normally do when you're in the office. Like, you know, whether you're on Slack or Teams or texts or whatever, or emails even, however you're communicating with, with everybody, just like doing things like saying, oh, yeah, I'm on now. Good morning. I'm going to go take a break. You know, that that helps. And the funny thing is you say you say that it's it feels weird to do that digitally, but we do do that in the office. We do say right. those sort of things in the office. Exactly. It yeah, just it, feels it, odd to do it via instant messenger, but yeah, yeah. these are like normal cues. Like so you tell your coworker, okay, hey, I'm going to lunch now, but you know, it's, it's weird when they're not in the room with you, but it's trying to mimic real life digitally. Yeah. yeah. Well, then, and just as important is, is saying, is signing off, is, is telling people, all right, I'm, I'm done. I'm leaving the office for the day, which is a thing that you get to do in normal life. But if if you don't tell people, hey, I'm I'm like off now, I'm done, then you're kind of setting yourself up for this position where you're sort of working 24 hours a day, and that's that's really stressful. Uh, the other thing I've I've learned is um, I don't I don't have a lot of space here. Um, I've set up my office in my bedroom. Um, but trying as much as I can to separate where I work from like where I do leisure activities has been really helpful. Um, it, I, I, like, I can't now, normally I would like maybe unwind by playing video games or something in my bedroom, but I, I just can't anymore. Cause now this is my, my office. So I, I've like got to leave this room and go somewhere else to unwind. Um, as far as my personal life um i think that i I don't know i i've been i've been exercising more than i have been which i think is is good and helpful i've cleaned my house a lot (laughs) have a lot of time to do that now as i feel good about that um i I don't know i i i'm curious if anybody has any like entertainment recommendations though i i i feel as overwhelmed as i ever have been about like options of movies and, and TV shows to watch. And I'm always looking at, like, I, I just finished Tiger King 
Um, that was so did I. Ab- I just finished absolutely the other day. wild. Absolutely wild. So uh, many South Carolina connections too. Lots it, of South yeah, Carolina I, connections. I, I do recommend it. It's not a happy story by any stretch no. of the imagination, but um, there is definitely an element of escapism, though, because it's yeah. probably so far removed from what your reality is. Maybe not. I mean, it could. Whoever's listening, maybe. It, oh maybe yeah. You are involved in the wild animal world, but it is probably <laughs> it is most likely far removed from your reality. So even though it's not happy, it is definitely prime escapism TV. For sure. I don't think anyone wants to take my recommendation of playing Settlers of Catan on my phone. Oh my God. Pretty much nonstop. (laughs) You should be isolating with Brent. He loves (laughs) that game. That's so good. I'm I'm a I'm a big um I'm a big advocate of uh puzzles. I've I've yeah. completed uh see the thing is is I'm need I need to ration my puzzling um because I'm I'm definitely gonna blow through them way too quickly, but I'm on to my Golden Girls one thousand piece puzzle now. So oh, wow. It's very exciting. Yeah. That's nerdy. The funny thing is like I am more excited about new episodes of shows that my four-year-old wants to watch like so that I don't have to keep <laughs> watching the same 10 episodes of Sophia the first like boss baby back in business there's a, there was a new ep- there was a new season release and I'm like finally we have new ones oh my god and like Disney that's plus great. could not have come along at a better time it's excellent no. that's great <laughs> uh. yeah and if you got a Nintendo switch I also highly recommend the new Animal Crossing game um Gosh. also also, escapism, but in a completely different direction. It's just adorable. I, I love it. <laughs> just running around doing doing stupid errands for cute little animals. Well, I miss y'all. Yeah, yeah. I miss, miss, I miss everybody. I miss seeing your faces. I, I know. I'm glad we could do I, this with the video. I am. I am really looking forward to, but but I wonder what it's going to be like when this is over. Um. Because now I've I've like come to the I've made peace with the idea that this is not going to be a couple of weeks. This is this is going to last at least a couple more more weeks than it is. So, I, you know, I, I think this is going to have lasting impact on me. Um, but then also, what is it going to be like? Are we ever going to? I don't I, I don't think we're going to get like a an all clear. You know, it's going to be like slower than I think I want it to be as far as like how we can return to to normal social interaction. I'm kind of trying to wrap my mind around that. Like, is this the death of the handshake? Right. Right. Or or even 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 if even if let's say that it it gets better, like because I feel like this won't truly be over until we either have like a quote unquote cure or a vaccine. Right. Because. Mm It could come back in the fall, even if it goes away in, in the summer, it could come back again in, in the fall. And, and we don't even know that it's going to go away in the summer. That's still kind of an assumption, but I don't know. Right. I think, like you said, it's it's definitely not going to be a OK, everyone, you know, all clear. Everyone come out of your houses and like give each other a hug. Yeah. It's not going to be <laughs> it's not going to be like that. And it's that's probably going to be a really difficult period of time is trying to figure out the new normal, you know, yeah, the the nuances of kind of like easing back into kind yeah. of normalcy. I think you're right. That's gonna be that's gonna be complicated, right? Because like my my first instinct is, would be to just throw a colossal party, but that's probably the worst thing that you could do. 
Yeah. In, Although in the circumstance. there will be some people who will do that. I'm oh, sure. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I guess right. we'll have well, to do another podcast then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, I, I'm confident this is not our last COVID podcast. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I well, think then. this is going to be COVID, COVID podcast yeah. for a little while. Maybe, maybe we just rename it Understanding COVID or Understand COVID. <laughs> yeah. So I guess least, until next time. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you all so much for, for coming back on and uh, giving us all an update for the last two weeks. So uh, we mentioned it earlier, but you can find all of the Post and Courier's coronavirus coverage and real-time stats on the outbreak in South Carolina at postandcourier.com slash COVID-19. It's no dash or anything. It's C-O-V-I-D-1-9. Uh, you can also just go to postandcourier.com, and there's a great big link right there. Um, all of our coronavirus coverage is still free without a subscription, but um, I'm going to once again ask everybody to subscribe if you have not, because that is what pays for everything that we're doing right now. We can't put the paper together. We can't make these articles free if people aren't subscribing. Um, we also now have a new uh, local news donate or local news fund that you can donate to. It's tax deductible. Um, you'll find it at the top of any of our coronavirus articles. There, it says right there. Like you can either subscribe or donate. Um, and that will go to to help other help us, but also uh, other local news outlets that are also struggling, um, like all businesses are um, in in these times. So uh, definitely go go check all of that out and uh, stay safe. You too, and healthy. Yes. You too, everyone. Yes, thank you, thank you, everyone. Bye. All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com, or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later.